Hello, and welcome to the YTBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I am Mara, a second-year PhD student in microbiology. And I'm Samantha, a first-year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. And as you guys probably noticed, or maybe not, we haven't been in for a couple of weeks. That's because of Thanksgiving break and all of the associated weekends. Um, but now we're back, and we have a lot of stuff to cover. So... We chose four topics for this week, and if we haven't featured something that you found cool, we're very sorry. It doesn't mean that it's not great. It just means that didn't make it to our top four. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely. All right. Well, Samantha, why don't you get us started? Yeah. So today we are talking about, for our first study, a drug called semaglutide that has already been approved by the FDA for chronic weight management for certain individuals but has now been shown in a Yale study to be effective in reducing cardiovascular risk. Okay, that's cool. But can you explain more about what semaglutide is before we talk about the study? Yeah, of course. So according to the FDA, semaglutide is part of a class of medications known as glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, which mimic the hormone that is released into the gastrointestinal tract in response to food consumption. So after that hormone is released, that leads to insulin production. And then as a result of that, your blood sugar gets lower. I see. I think we're ready now. Tell yeah. us about the study. Okay, great. So the team conducted a cross-sectional analysis based off of data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, looking at four cycles from 2011 to 2012 and then to 2017 to 2020. During the study, they narrowed the scope to people 45 years or older with a BMI of 27 or above and established, and people who have established arthrosclerosis. Um, and that being the buildup of things like fats, cholesterol in the arteries or along the arterial walls. And in their analysis, the participants selected for semaglutide treatment were stratified to meet certain select criteria along with race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic factors. And what did this study find? So the big finding in the study is that semaglutide reduces the risk of major heart events by 20% in adults aged 45 or older who have heart disease and obesity but no diabetes. And then looking more at, you know, the sub-vulnerable groups, um, when determining eligibility from the NHANES database, um, via the stratification, they found that black adults and white adults had the highest eligibility rate at about 4.63% and 4.6% respectively, followed by a pretty steep drop-off to Hispanic adults at 2.96% and Asian adults at 0.63%. Additionally, they found that adults with lower educational attainment, people who are unemployed and or outside the labor force, and people from lower income families we're all more likely to meet the eligibility criteria for semaglutide treatment. Interesting. So what does all of that mean in the end? Yeah, so this large pool of eligibility shows that lots of people, even those without diabetes, who have cardiovascular disease can benefit from semaglutide treatment. But the researchers say that the benefit, the future benefit of the treatment to those who need it is pretty uncertain um, given that a significant portion, like marginalized groups and people with lower socioeconomic status, um, a significant portion of those who need the treatment um, just might have 
difficulties accessing it due to access barriers and financial barriers. Can you talk a little bit more about accessibility barriers? Yeah, absolutely. I really can only speak about it from personal experience and you know what we've been seeing in the media recently, but if you look at different um, diabetes medications, kind of like um, this semaglutide one called Wagovi that is the focus of this study, um, you'll see that it's used for um, diabetes and controlling blood sugar, but a side effect of it is weight loss. And so when we talk about access barriers, there are so many dimensions of it, some being financial barriers and you know being able to get insurance to cover the cost of it, but there are also access barriers in that a lot of these um, medications like Wagovi, like Ozempic, Trulicity, Manjaro, who are all kind of having the same effect, um, they are really exhibiting lots of shortages and people are unable to reach them for you know various reasons, manufacturing, but also there are other people who are targeting usage of these medications in order to have weight loss, which is making it really hard for people with diabetes who need it to control their blood sugar, it's making it hard for them to access these medications and you know get this medication that's necessary for their everyday health rather than just an aesthetic benefit. I see, that. that's a problem I've never even thought about. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's one that's pretty personal to people who have had firsthand experience with diabetes. I mean, for me, it's not within myself, it's with my um, father. And so, you know, it's hard to it's hard to watch people go through that and not be able to get the medicine they need. I wonder if there are any policy level efforts that are being done to maybe limit use of anti-diabetes medication for antibiotic causes or some kind of, yeah, just some kind of policies being put in place. I mean, I hope there are. I personally have not done much, much research into that, but um, I'd be happy to look into that and get back to it for us. Yeah, that would be interesting. Good topic for discussion, I hope. Yeah. So, Mara, moving on to your study, um, tell us all about it. What are we, what are we looking at? Yeah. So, the study was conducted in our department of psychiatry and was led by two professors, Danielle Levy and Joel Gallon. <laughs> I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, or at least close to being correct. Uh, if not, I apologize. The study was recently published in Nature Genetics, and they are looking at genome-wide association of cannabis use disorders um, and different genes that it might be associated with. So were they just looking at all cannabis users? No, actually, cannabis use disorder is a specifically defined psychiatric disorder, and it's characterized by problematic and compulsive cannabis use, leading to significant impairment or distress in different areas of life. So it's diagnosed when marijuana use starts to interfere with daily functioning, causing problems at, say, work, school, or different relationships. And the um, definition also includes craving, increased tolerance, and things like withdrawal syndrome symptoms. So it's really similar to different substance abuse disorders. And you might think, like me, that it is very rare, but in fact, more than a third of individuals who use cannabis develop cannabis use disorder. And it also has other negative health outcomes that are associated with it, such as various cancers, which are just associated with inhaling combustion products, so same mechanisms we see with tobacco smoke, and declines in cognitive capacity and motivation, and increased risk for diseases like schizophrenia. 
So basically what they did is they looked into the genetic factors that somehow coincide with this phenomenon. Not really things that cause it or think, like, things that this phenomenon causes in terms of health conditions, but more like looking into the correlation between certain mutations and certain differences in genomes in people who actually have this kind of disorder. But where did they get their samples? So they actually used Million Veterans Program, which, if somebody remembers, was already featured in one of our podcasts some time ago. Um, the reason why a lot of people use it is because it is one of the world's largest genetic databases. It is collected by U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and it can be used by researchers. Now, here they also expanded their pool by including extra samples from ISAG2 and Mass General Brigham Biobank. That's so cool. And what did they discover? So they actually found out that there are some significant genetic differences. And what is also interesting is that those are unique to different ancestries. So they separate their samples into four big categories, European, African, East Asian, and mixed American ancestries. And they saw that those loci are unique to each ancestry. So that was very interesting for me. And they also saw some correlation with diseases such as lung cancer, but unfortunately, I feel like that's hard to unlink from the negative outcomes and from cigarette smoke that can be coinciding with this kind of problem. That's so fascinating. And so what are other limitations of this study? Well, as I know that in the paper, one of the limitations is that it's hard to have a control group that has never been exposed to marijuana smoke because while you can try to control that in test questions, it just goes underreported in a lot, a lot of cases and they can never be sure that their control group actually have never been exposed. So that's one of the main problems. And then as with all kinds of like correlation, causation research, here, you can't say for sure that any of the genetic factors they found is resulting directly in uh, incidence of cannabis use disorder. But they're still trying to unwind this very intense network of genetic predisposition and what causes the disease. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I feel like as cannabis use becomes more and more normalized, um, it'll be interesting to hear about the results of studies like these and see what their health effects are. It is very important because I feel like it is becoming legal in more places and more states, but we don't have as much insight into what kind of medical problems it can cause in the future. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really like learning about its therapeutic effects, so this will be interesting to follow. Yeah, I'm just afraid it's going to be in some way like with opioids or painkillers and that they do have really good effects for reducing pain in individuals, but at the same time, they may have some cause on the health yeah, person. At the, the, at the end of the day, it's really about use in moderation and not abusing it, right? Yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> okay, so what is our next paper about? So, in this next study, a team at Yale observed the association between elevated exposure to ambient fine particulate matter, called PM2.5, and adverse outcomes on children's test scores. I mean, once again, long-term listeners who might have heard a previous episode linking asthma in New York to PM2.5 um, exposure will, will be well acquainted with this. 
But um, basically, in this study, they conducted a cross-sectional study using student-level administrative data from the North Carolina Education Research Data Center, and were able to actually observe all public school students, grades three through eight, in North Carolina from 2001 to 2018. That, that's a big time change. Yeah. And um, yeah, just like tell us more about what did they find and how did they do it? Yeah, so basically with the pool of public school um, student data, they standardized the student scores for comparability, assigned them each PM 2.5 concentrations, and conducted a two-way fixed effects regression model to find data on vulnerable groups and just the overall data. And they included interaction terms between the fine particulate matter exposure and student characteristics such as sex, race, and family income. What they found is that increases in PM 2.5 concentration are in fact associated with lower standardized end of grade math and reading test scores. Additionally, they found that girls' math scores and the reading scores of students from low-income families were more highly susceptible to PM 2.5 exposure. And lastly, the study also found a negative association of PM 2.5 with math scores and an association between increased poor reading performance and PM 2.5 exposure. That's actually very interesting because I can imagine how inhaling polluted air will decrease performance just because somebody would be sick, but if we're talking about real-time effects of it on test scores, that's, that's scary. Yeah, no, and seeing that there are certain groups, I mean, we all inhale air, but seeing that there are still, regardless, certain groups who are more highly susceptible to having worse test scores because of polluted air is just fascinating. Yeah, let's see where this research takes us in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, for our last study, tell us all about it. Well, here, researchers look into RNA splicing mechanisms. And they like dove really, really deep into this very important and super conserved mechanism throughout uh, pretty much all the species. <laughs> okay, well, what exactly is splicing? Well, as you guys all probably know, our genetic material is encoded in the DNA. But it is, when I say encoded, it's pretty much like a textbook, but it is in code. So you can't directly read it, directly utilize this for anything. So in every cell, there exists a mechanism where this DNA is first translated into RNA. And translation pretty much means just that. This code is turned into something that is readable for a cell to create more building blocks or perform any other task. But before this RNA can go on and transmit this text to something useful, it has to undergo some processing, which includes splicing. Splicing is just cutting out all things that are not really needed for correct function of the protein. And actually, if splicing doesn't work correctly, diseases like Parkinson's, different muscular atrophies, or even cystic fibrosis can be a result of that. So what were they looking for in their research? So they were looking at the very point where RNA is spliced, which is performed by what we call spliceosome, which is just this really large machinery made out of different proteins and RNA that actually performed the Texas hand. And what they did, um, they looked at bacterial spliceosome, which is supposed to be like an ancestor to the spliceosomes we have in our organisms or in organisms of um, higher species, mammals, and 
So they looked into this on three sales places. So because this mechanism is so important that it is conserved evolutionary through centuries and millennia. So when we're looking into something that's ancestral to all the other spliceosomes, we can actually see more into how it functions. And uh, they used techniques like microscopy and cryo-EM, and they just literally looked into different stages of this complex and how it changes and how it performs what it needs to perform. Great. And so what did they find? Well, it was more of a exploratory study rather than hypothesis-based study. So instead of proposing some idea and then testing it, they just looked into what exactly is happening on a molecular level. And they did find different interactions between the proteins that are involved and the RNA and the conformational changes that are induced during this process in the spliceosome itself and in the RNA. And what are the implications of these results? Well, like with any basic science research, even if it doesn't have implications on public health directly, for example, knowing how a spliceosome works will probably not prevent Parkinson's. However, when we, those mechanisms are so important and just so basic to function of any cell that the better we know them, the more methods we have for controlling different diseases and drug development and just things like that. <laughs> it, the implications are endless. That's so fascinating. No, it's really interesting learning about those, even if you know there aren't really direct applications yet or you know therapeutic development purposes. Yeah, totally agreed. And here at Yale, we have a lot, a lot of really good basic biology research going on that hopefully will lead to amazing discoveries. Yeah, like what you're doing. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's keep quiet about that for now. <laughs> okay, well, thank you guys for being with us today. This was awesome. So happy to come back and record some more news. And we'll be here next week. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us. We love to have you. Bye.